Hello, my knowledge seekers. Welcome back to another episode of Michelle Carey's Useless Information Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Carey, dedicated to diving deep into the world of odd facts and intriguing mysteries. But before I get into our main topic, I want to touch upon the Titanic adventure voyage of the Titan submersible by OceanGate. I'm not going to rehash what we already know, but I do want to say how conflicted I am about this situation. While I believe adventure is necessary, extreme or risky adventure is not. What I've learned by doing the last two podcast episodes, one about Mount Everest and the last one about hikers getting lost in the wilderness. And now this week, it's people dying at the depths of the ocean from the highest point, the middle ground earth, to one of the lowest points. None of this is worth a life, a soul. One of the saddest parts of this Titan situation is they didn't even get to see the Titanic. They never made it. And I'm not going to pass any blame on to the father whose son at 19 years old was apprehensive about doing this adventure. Parents do things with their children all the time. I guess the comfort is knowing that they died together. I don't want to be judgmental, but I think it's just shocking to our minds and sensibilities, if anything. But with that, today, we're going to plunge into a story of a man whose identity remains a mystery and continues to baffle us. We're delving into the tale of D.B. Cooper. So buckle up, listeners, because we're about to take a flight into the unknown. Do you want to know what happened at Maryland State University? It's a gripping story that will take your breath away. If you're looking for something to read, look no further than what happened at Maryland State University, released via paperback and hardback and an ebook. It is an intensely raw and gripping novel by Michelle Carey. When four unlikely college students fight the dark source for the first time on Halloween night, they realize their families have been battling it for generations. What happened at Maryland State University is an epic tale of magic, gamesmanship, and bravery. This is the perfect book for anyone looking to enter the new world of young adult fiction. Fighting evil has never been so fun, with so much at stake. There is no time to lose. Buy what happened at Maryland State University today at these retailers, Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Google Play Books, and Kobo. And coming in soon from the Michelle Carey website at www.michellescarey.com. This ad is sponsored by Sunray Multimedia. Our story begins on a rain-soaked afternoon at the Portland International Airport. On the eve of Thanksgiving, November 24, 1971, a man toting a black briefcase made his way to the flight desk of Northwest Orient Airlines. He paid cash to purchase a one-way ticket for Flight 305, a brief 30-minute voyage northbound to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, commonly known as SeaTac. The man registered his name as Dan Cooper on his ticket. Witnesses portrayed Cooper as a white male in his mid-40s with dark hair and brown eyes. He was decked out in a brown or black business suit, a crisp white shirt, a slim black tie, a black raincoat, and brown shoes. Armed with his briefcase and a nondescript brown paper bag, Cooper embarked on Flight 305, a Boeing 727-100 with FAA registration in 467-US. Once on board, he claimed seat 18E at the back of the plane and ordered a bourbon and 7-Up to wet his palate. Little did his fellow passengers know that the briefcase housed a bomb. Carrying a crew of six and 37 passengers, Flight 305 embarked from Portland punctually at 
2.50 p.m. PST, Pacific Standard Time. Not long after the plane was airborne, Cooper extended a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant in the jump seat just behind him. Schaffner presumed the note to be nothing more than a solitary businessman contact details, casually discarded the unopened note into her purse. Sensing her indifference, Cooper leaned in closer to her and whispered in a serious tone, Miss, I suggest you take a glance at that note. I'm carrying in a bomb. He opened his briefcase to prove it, revealing a jumble of wires, cylinders, and red sticks. The quiet man in seat 18E had just turned into a hijacker. Cooper snapped the briefcase shut and dictated his demands to Schaffner. She jotted down Cooper's stipulations on paper, carrying it to the cockpit, apprised the flight crew of the alarming situation. Captain William A. Scott instructed her to stay put in the cockpit for the rest of the flight and record the unfolding events. He then communicated with Minnesota's Northwest Flight Operations Center and conveyed the hijacker's ultimatums. Cooper demanded $200,000. The $200,000 is equivalent to $1.4 million in today's dollars to be delivered in a knapsack by 5 p.m. He specified two front and two back parachutes. He insisted on having the money in negotiable American currency. The request for the two sets of parachutes subtly implied that Cooper intended to take a hostage along, which cleverly discouraged the authorities from providing him with faulty equipment. And he also requested a fuel truck ready to refuel the plane once it had landed in Seattle. With one of the flight attendants, Schaffner, in the cockpit, another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, sat next to Cooper to act as a liaison between him and the flight crew in the cockpit. Captain Scott relayed the precarious situation to the air traffic control at Seattle-Tacoma Airport, which in turn alerted local law enforcement and the FBI. Passengers aboard were given a slightly modified version of events. They were told their arrival in Seattle would be delayed due to a minor mechanical issue. The president of Northwest Oriented gave the green light for the payment of the ransom and instructed that all his employees to cooperate with the hijacker and fulfill his demands fully. To buy sufficient time for Seattle police and the FBI to gather the demanded ransom money and parachutes. To ready the emergency personnel, Flight 305 hovered over Punjet Sound for approximately two hours. Throughout the journey from Portland to Seattle, Cooper insisted that Mucklow, the flight attendant, always remain in his company. Mucklow later reported that Cooper seemed remarkably knowledgeable about the local terrain. As he gazed out the window, he casually commented, looks like Tacoma down there, as he flew overhead. He also accurately mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was a mere 20-minute drive from the SeaTac Airport. Reflecting on Cooper's behavior, Mucklow described he didn't seem nervous. He was rather pleasant, neither cruel nor nasty. FBI agents coordinated with several banks in the Seattle area to gather the ransom money. The ransom, a total of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, the majority of which bore serial numbers started with the letter L, indicating that they were issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco was meticulously photographed on microfilm by the FBI. Cooper declined the military
military-issue parachutes proposed by McCord Air Force Base personnel, insisting instead on four civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. To meet his demands, Seattle police sourced the two front reserve parachutes from a nearby skydiving school and the two back, the main parachutes, from a local stunt pilot. Around 524 PST, Captain Scott received confirmation that the parachutes had been bought to the airport and relayed the update to Cooper, adding that they'd soon be touching down. At 546 PST, Flight 305 made its landing at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. With Cooper's approval, Scott steered the aircraft onto a dimly lit runway detached from the main terminal. Cooper stipulated that only a single airline representative could approach the aircraft with the money and parachutes. With the plane's front door via the mobile air stairs as the sole entry and exit point, the Seattle operations manager for Northwest Orient was chosen for this task. He changed into civilian attire to eliminate any chance of Cooper mistaking him for a law enforcement officer due to his uniform. A ground crew connected the mobile staircase while the passengers remained in their seats. Following Cooper's instructions, Mucklow left the aircraft through the front door to fetch the ransom. When she returned, she carried the bag of money past the seated passengers to deliver it to Cooper in the last row. With the ransom in his possession, Cooper agreed to free the passengers. As they began to disembark, Cooper inspected the money. Mucklow humorously asked Cooper if she could take some of the money in a light-hearted attempt to cut through the tension. Cooper acquiesced, handing her a bundle of bills, but she promptly returned the money, citing company policy against accepting gratuities. She recalled how Cooper had attempted to tip her and the other two flight attendants from his own money, but they had all turned him down, adhering to the policy. He then instructed the crew to fly towards Mexico City, setting a course that would take the plane over the vast wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. He handed over his flight plan and specific instructions to the cockpit crew. They were to set a course southeast towards Mexico City at the slowest possible airspeed without causing the aircraft to stall, roughly 100 knots, and maintain a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. Furthermore, Cooper mandated that the landing gear stay deployed, the wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. Cooper had no intention of reaching Mexico City. Around 8 p.m. while the plane was in mid-flight, Cooper did the unthinkable. He lowered the rear air stair, stepping into the biting cold, and leaped into the night, disappearing into the stormy darkness below. And then he was gone, swallowed up by the rugged landscape cloaked in the anonymity of his chosen alias, D.B. Cooper, a mix-up by a media outlet that forever stuck. Cooper's daring leap from the plane initiated an extensive ground search. Hundreds of local law enforcement and FBI agents, aided with by helicopters and search dogs, combed the vast wilderness where they believed Cooper had landed. But the Pacific Northwest hampered their efforts with its thick forests and harsh winter weather. Despite the exhaustive search by the FBI and local authorities, no conclusive evidence of Cooper's fate was discovered. No body, no parachute, or the briefcase was found. The hijacker had seemingly vanished into thin air, 
However, the investigation did turn up a few tantalizing clues. The only traces ever found were a small cachet of the ransom money. In 1980, nearly a decade after Cooper's disappearance, a young boy named Brian Ingram was digging a fire pit along the Columbia River. He stumbled upon three packs of the ransom money, still bundled in rubber bands. This discovery renewed interest in the case, but ultimately brought investigators no closer to identifying Cooper or determining his fate. Over the years, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects, each vetted using a rigorous set of criteria, each vetted using a vigorous set of criteria, including physical descriptions, parachuting experience, and whether they could be placed in the Pacific Northwest area around the time of the hijacking. Cooper's audacious act sparked wild speculation. Was he an experienced skydiver, an adrenaline junkie, a desperate man with nothing to lose, or an insider with knowledge of the Boeing 727 unique ability to lower its stairs during flight. One of the most intriguing aspects was Richard Floyd McCoy, who was convicted of a similar airplane hijacking and escaped by parachute less than five months after Cooper's flight. McCoy was killed in a shootout with law enforcement in 1974, and while some believe he was D.B. Cooper, the FBI ruled him out due to significant differences in their physical description. On July 8, 2016, the FBI put on hold, stating that the necessity to allocate investigative resources and manpower to more immediate and critical issues. While the case may have been suspended, local field offices still entertain any legitimate physical evidence related to specifically to the parachutes or the ransom money that could surface. The comprehensive 66-volume case file assembled throughout the years of the investigation was set to be preserved for historical reference by the FBI headquarters in D.C. and on the FBI's website. All evidence is accessible to the public. The crime remains the single most unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. It was declared one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations. The allure of D.B. Cooper has endured armchair detectives, fascinated by the audacity and the mystery of D.B. Cooper, continue to speculate about his identity and fate. They scrutinize evidence, propose theories, and even name a few suspects. For instance, in 2018, a team of investigators claimed they had deciphered hidden message in one of the letters allegedly sent by Cooper after the hijacking, pointing to a Vietnam veteran named Robert Rackshaw. However, the FBI has not confirmed these claims. Some people believe Cooper died that night. His body was lost somewhere in the Pacific Northwest dense forest. Others believe he survived and is living out his days in anonymity. Some even have come forward claiming to be Cooper or knowing his true identity. There are countless theories, but the truth remains shrouded in mystery. Despite the scale and length of the investigation, D.B. Cooper remains a phantom. The only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of commercial aviation, the saga of D.B. Cooper is a tale of audacity, mystery, and intrigue that continues to captivate us even after all these years. In the end, D.B. Cooper's story is more than just a case of hijacking. It's a tale that captures the human imagination, compelling us to solve its mysteries, understand its protagonist, and ultimately seek closure. So who was D.B. Cooper? What happened to him after he jumped? The answers remain as elusive as the man himself. 
But one thing is certain in the world of useless information, the tale of D.B. Cooper is a treasure chest of intrigue and speculation. And that's it for this episode, folks. Keep questioning, keep seeking, and remember sometimes the most useless information can lead to the most intriguing stories. I'm Michelle Carey, your guide in the world of knowledge less traveled. And if you like what you're hearing in the Useless Information Podcast, please take the time to hit the follow or subscribe button so you're kept up to date when another episode goes live. And if you like what you're hearing, do me a big favor and leave a review if you're listening on Spotify, Apple, or whatever major podcast platform you're on. And if you're listening to this on YouTube or Rumble, please like and subscribe. Your follow, subscribe, and review. Let the podcast guys know. Hell yeah, I'm picking up what Michelle is putting down. I've also expanded the podcast to Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Michelle S. Carey. Thanks for hanging out with me on this adventure. I'll catch you later with more seamlessly useless information. But as always, I'm grateful for your listenership, and I thank you for being a part of the Useless Information crew. Today and always, until next time, be well, stay safe, and give love. This podcast has been produced by Sunray Multimedia and Michelle Carey. Music by CreatorMix.com. The YouTube audio library and editing by Descript.